0: to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, C1 Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you are safe wherever you are. I am currently back in Zhuhai and settling down. I still have quite a lot to do, such as unpacking and getting a multi-entry visa. But otherwise, after um, four COVID nasal tests and two antibody tests, I am finally out of quarantine. Um, life feels strangely normal and post-COVID here, with China having essentially tested everyone And close its borders to the world, so everything is in this sort of strange bubble. I hope, with all the news on the vaccine, that the world can open up soon as well. We shall see. But for today, I am interviewing Johan Natalie Meek, an experimental dancer and researcher who works at the intersection of dance, performance studies, and ethnology. Natalie began her dance career studying classical ballet before branching out to other dance forms and disciplines. Currently, Natalie is pursuing her PhD on choreography and ghosts in contemporary transnational Asian performance. I met Natalie during my time in Berlin and even saw two of her performances, but I did not have a chance to interview her until recently over Zoom. The sound quality is not the best and hopefully it isn't too distracting. We chat quite a bit about Natalie's early life and path through dance, Asian studies in Germany, teeth blackening, and Asian squats. I hope you enjoy this. Yeah. yeah, so I guess, yeah, I mean, why don't we go back to, I guess, you you know, as you kind of mentioned, you know, you're born in Germany and your parents immigrated there. What was that whole process like?
1: My mom was uh, one of the many nurses who emigrated from South Korea to mm. Germany in, in the late 60s. So the year when she arrived in Germany was 1970. And she was um, the youngest in her group. Um, How old? She just turned 18. Jesus I mean, that's Christ. That's incredibly young for a person who decides to just cross the ocean and live in another country. But she was always a brave woman (laughs) and very adventurous and And she still is an independent with (laughs) almost 70. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And it was a time when many Koreans back then the men came as mine workers, yeah. you might have heard. Mm-hmm. And there was a sh- like big shortage in hospitals in Germany. Um, so the nurses, the women who came as nurses, they were distributed throughout the country to over mm-hmm. 400 hospitals in Germany. And it was um, a big job opportunity for a lot of Koreans back then.
0: So was she trained as a nurse prior to being 18, or she was brought to Germany and then trained?
1: Yeah. Nobody was trained. Nobody was trained as a mine worker. Nobody was trained as a nurse. It was also um, a very unfair contract that is often written about as modern slavery at these times. Um, Mm -hmm. History. um, Yeah. And it was a big hope and job opportunity for a lot of Koreans back then because it was so shortly after the Korean War and the country was so poor. I mean you've been to Seoul, it's such a modern city now, but it was in like literally in ruins and yeah. people were did not have food. Yeah. And they were looking they were having these announcements everywhere job opportunity mm. in West Germany and it was um, this one of the very few, if not the only Asian country back then by Germany, um, they were back then not recruiting or or inviting any Africans and Asians to their countries as guest workers. Um, So it was a very relatively small group of the first Asians who came to Mm. Germany as guest workers. The second term, it's it's called Gastarbeiter, so mm-hmm. where they invited as migrant workers yeah. mm-hmm. and were meant to leave again. And this is um, how my mom left the country because a lot of these people were educated and they did not see any future, any hope.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Also politically, no hope for her it was a big adventure that she was embarking on. She went to Berlin where I live now and eventually she moved to Spain to other countries but she ended up in Spain okay it was for her a way to get out of the country Uh and to get out of post-war environment and she really fell in love with Spain and she settled down there Really, I didn't (laughs) know that my yeah that's that's how uh, my parents Mm. met so my parents met in Spain and um, when she got pregnant she I saw really fun pictures of she (laughs) being pregnant and not being able to go on the plane. So they took the car and drove up to Germany again oh. to give birth to me. So I was made in Spain. <laughs> uh, driving up with her in her belly um, up to Berlin. But yeah, she always says, Yeah, you decided to, you know, come out into Sudov, which is my hometown, birth town. <laughs> oh. So, so you, you're you're forced,
0: you're forced to get out into Berlin.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so they settled down. She was a nomad, or she is still and that yeah. She very much believes in energy and things that happen. And she thought that was a sign to settle down
0: yeah. there. And so you grew up in Dusseldorf.
1: Yes. So, yeah, I grew up in Noise to be precise. It's a smaller town, very close to Dusseldorf, divided by the Rhine River. Mm-hmm. And I grew up, I'd say, two third of my childhood, like up until fifth grade. It's a little complicated because we moved a lot. Mm-hmm. So we had our base in Germany, but I lived in four different countries. So up until fifth grade, I lived in Korea with my grandparents, which was the longest time. I think that really helped also with my Korean and my Emotional bond to Korea, and I also lived in Turkey and in New Zealand, in Christchurch, yeah, and in Germany. What, was lot of,
0: what brought, what made all that moving? Was, but was, what was the connection to Turkey and New Zealand?
1: Um, New Zealand, because the majority, of, except one uncle of the whole family from of my mother's side, lives in Christchurch. Um. They gradually immigrated there it's yeah they apparently wanted to spread out and i'm sure there is an interesting story behind immigration history between korea and new zealand as far as i know there was a lot of immigration happening Mm. in the 90s so yeah my mom just moved a lot like i said Um, yeah yeah so i lived there for a short time and i was in turkey because of for a few years, my parents had a business and that was also related to Turkey. So the products that they were developing were also produced in Turkey. So, but were they, what, was being,
0: what was being made?
1: Um, it was a business that, that my dad was making. Uh, okay. And due to that, it, there was a lot of back and forth to some extent that I had to learn Turkish and really? I was living there for a while. Wow, I goodness. forgot everything. <laughs> yeah. I forgot everything. And I also only remember very little things.
0: Hmm. And then were you dancing the entire time? Cause I saw, I know that you were, you know, you were doing ballet since you were a kid. How, how did that happen? Um, how'd you get introduced yeah. to dance?
1: I was dancing since I was three <laughs> and that is probably so before i started with ballet it was korean korean traditional dance oh. korean folk dance because huh. when i was 3 my mom you know she brought me to my grandparents place in korea and my second auntie was living there too mm-hmm. at that time she was i grew up with three mothers i yeah. have two aunties and both of them don't have children mm. For them, I'm, I'm their child and they are for me, my mothers. And she used to be my second aunt who really just was my, my, my third mother in Korea. She used to be a kayagum player. It's a Korean traditional instrument mm-hmm. and also trained in Korean traditional dance and other instruments. She was one of the two disciples of a kayaking player in Korea who is a living national treasure Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she eventually did not become an official figure who was passing down this, this tradition and decided to live with her parents who are my grandparents in this very rural area of Korea. I have very vivid memories of living there with her and she just I think she must have pushed some buttons when I was a baby that still hmm. kind of move my body. Really? She was so much creating this, these wonderful environments in, in this, in this farm. So my grandparents had a farm and I had my own wardrobe because every day we would play these dance theater plays. Hmm. And you know, that audience was eventually, it was, was were my grandparents usually (laughs) Uh and I was this little child in the village and a three-year-old three I was there three to four five and then yeah by when I was five turning six I went back to Germany and that's when I started Mm. ballet but yeah the people from the village would come and I knew all the songs all the folk songs I could sing every song and my emo my my auntie would do my makeup and I had different costumes and (laughs) I was performing for the village basically
0: wow do you remember any of this like do you remember the dances and so you do okay
1: I remember it's so funny because some of my childhood memories from kindergarten or when I was living in the city in Germany I have very vague memories but these memories are so so vivid wow even like I even remember how some of the costumes feel on my skin. Yeah, some of the faces of the village people, I remember it's really,
2: Hmm.
1: yeah, I really enjoyed that time. I really risked my parents too, but I really enjoyed that time.
0: Yeah. And then, so when you moved back to Germany, was that a shock? Or do you remember? Or were you so little that everything kind of fluidly, you know, you're moving around so much. I can't imagine going from...
1: Yeah, it was a lot of moving. Um, I don't remember everything. And I'm sure um, many children who move around a lot when they were very little go through that. But I had difficulties speaking Mm. and speaking fluently in one language. And sometimes I would not speak at all. Mm. It was so mixed up and confused in my language system. I assume that it took a long time. Um, also, one of the reasons why starting fifth grade, my mom was like, okay, she needs to just stay in one place and go to school and adjust and you know, make friends. So yeah, I, I don't remember culture shock per se. Yeah. I just, I was feeling comfortable. I remember I was feeling comfortable when my mom sent me to school. Because I was very hyper at school and would not want to do the things that the teacher told me to do. It's like, she needs to calm down. She needs to let out the energy somewhere else.
0: That's funny because you're so calm right now. I think it's the dance. I never saw you as... You know, you meet some adults who are like hyperactive who haven't grown out of it.
1: It might have happened if I never met dance. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe that's, that's the outlet that i have Mm -hmm. yeah and you know language is a dance Uh, dance is a language in itself Mm -hmm. so when i was dancing i felt comfortable i felt like okay i don't have to you know necessarily form sentences Mm -hmm. it was always a relief i mean up up until this day it's always a relief when i don't have to speak (laughs) speak, right (laughs) and that's that's like a common thread So, yeah, eventually I would adjust at school and do well. But I think I was able to adjust very well and make friends fast in German school because people knew I was dancing.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So you have starting fifth grade until 13th grade, you have um, the German school system called Gymnasium, which is uh, middle school and high school together and you visit that school for nine years. And I was one of these uh, students who would leave school earlier to go to ballet school. They knew that I was doing dance intensively and it helped them to identify me, I think, to understand Mm. where I was coming from and what I was doing and they respected me Mm. in in some way. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Germans take dance seriously. I think the first time I really thought about it, I saw the Pino Bausch movie, I think, in 2009
1: or 10. The Wim Wenders documentary? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a nice film.
0: Yeah. Um, And what did your mom think about your dancing?
1: I think she was not very surprised that I had this this energy, this interest in dance from early on. And she was approving, yes. (laughs) That's good. I so my first training, like I said, I studied. I ended up studying dance in Düsseldorf, the Deutsche Oper am Rhein, which is a opera and ballet company, which also has a ballet school that gives apprenticeships to students. So I did that. So
0: even then, um, you were preparing for like a to be a professional dancer.
1: Uh, yeah, at some point, because I started this so early, and I felt. And my surrounding people said, okay, you can do that. Maybe she can do this professionally. That's amazing. Uh, smaller <laughs> ballet school where I started dancing. Wow. The director said she needs to do it professionally. So we all thought that this was something that was happening. But I eventually started having doubts when I was um, doing this apprenticeship, which I finished, but I really started doubting seriously, whether this is something that I wanted to do professionally.
0: What what made you think
1: that? I cannot recur a um, incident or anything that made me start doubting, but I started losing, not interest. I mean, I, I was always in love with dancing and ballet. But I really did not like the regimens and how it was conducted, I guess. I was always, I guess, you know, if I'm honest, I was always one of the very few students who had to go after Ballet School to the director and I was always told to lose weight, for example. (laughs) You're like (laughs)
0: you're the last person I would say that to
1: and imagine i mean we were all teenager high school yeah. students yeah. and um, i think if i was very very crazy in love with ballet i would have done that mm. but i had so many other interests and i was just like no this does not feel right and i gradually lost the joy that was driving me so yeah and then i did my driver's license and drove to Den Haag and had a car accident, which caused a chronic back pain that I still need to deal with. And this was not the main reason why I decided to leave ballet school, but it was definitely that incident where I that that gave me one more reason to say, okay, this is not working out. Mm-hmm. You do not have the strength to work through this injury and to Work it out to mm. become a professional dancer. So I left and went to the next bigger town that offered Asian history. <laughs> so I studied Asian history and Asian studies in the knowledge department of the university in Bonn. That was my next kind of like journey that I embarked
0: on. Mm. How did you decide on on Asian studies?
1: I think it was my mom.
0: Really, she pushed you. <laughs>
1: I, she never told me, but she has such a inspirational impact on mm. on my being and you know spiritual being in so many ways. Just growing up with her, yeah, uh, her being so interested in history and Asian philosophy, and mm-hmm. Asian spiritualism, yeah, I was always curious. I always wanted to understand more. And I couldn't read the books that she was reading because they were very—they were all written in very difficult Korean. I eventually wanted to read these books, I guess.
0: So in Bon, you took Korean classes.
1: I also did take Korean classes. I was always very fluent, um, but I wanted to be able to understand these
0: books, yes, these. Yes. And, yeah, the um, philosophical books,
1: right? <laughs> yes, which is still hard, but. That, that was the beginning of that
0: quest, I guess. Yeah. I mean, even native language speakers have to learn how to read those books.
1: Yes. It's a different language. Yeah. Yeah, I was always fascinated by the images that I would see in the books that my mom was reading. And she also taught me how to meditate. Yeah, religion was a big part of the, of the Asian studies. That's mm-hmm. why when I decided to go to that department, They had a whole curriculum that was centered around religious studies Mm -hmm. and understanding rituals and religion from an historical and sociological standpoint, and understanding that also with you know in connection to Korean and Asian history. Mm -hmm. I was very curious, hungry to to learn about that. So in a way, I was also very just. Going after my interests. Naive. Yeah. Did not yeah. think anything. You know, I did not think about jobs or a career because I was dancing the whole time. And was that that was something I thought would you know happen? Yeah, that
0: was your career. Yeah.
1: yeah. And my mom also never primed me or trained me in that direction to think about oh you have to study this so that you can work in this field. She was always like, you you have to do what what your interests are, and then everything follows. That was her philosophy. So I just...
0: You internalized that.
1: Yeah. I thought, okay, next step is this. and Where can I learn that? That's why I went there.
0: So you went to Bonn, and then after that, what happened?
1: Well, that led me to do my master's in the same subject in Korea. So you went went straight to Korea? Yeah, right. I did not even go to a uh, how do you say this here?
0: Take a year off. Gradu-
1: graduate ceremony?
0: Oh, oh, you didn't, oh yeah, yeah. You didn't go to this the, the graduation ceremony, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I did not attend the ceremony because it was overlapping. I already had
0: Right, right. Cuz cuz German <laughs> schools end so late, right? They, yeah. they end so late,
1: yeah. Everything that was building up in my mind back then mm-hmm. as It was leaving Germany. (laughs) Really? And and leaving Germany for Asia and especially Korea.
0: You were sick of Germany at that point?
1: Um, If you want to say so, yes. I would have probably firmly told you I was sick of Germany. Mm -hmm. I want to leave this country 11 years ago when it happened. In retrospect, also yes. (laughs) Also yes. (laughs) It, it was a lot of things that, that came together. On the one hand, the wonderful things that I was learning at school, but I always felt like there is too much distance between what I was learning. I mm-hmm. wanted to immerse myself in, yeah. in all the things and experience these things myself. And also I wanted to go to Korea to further learn, learn Korean dance. Yeah, But it was also dissatisfaction and frustration that I was experiencing as a Asian. Student in Germany. I mean, up until high school, I was the only Asian student in the whole school. And then in Bonn, I met the first Asian people. <laughs> were <who was, laughs> this? Is how I the, the bar the bar solo. <laughs> and I was um, back then very critical and aware of the fact that I was advocating and promoting and studying a culture and a history a country that was so unknown and so invisible in Germany and while I was very fascinated by it I was tired of explaining mm-hmm. and advocating it yeah i think i was i was too small i felt too small and weak to do it and it was not my job to do it no, it was not, not my yeah. job to play the cultural ambassador but i felt that responsibility mm-hmm. so much yeah yeah Maybe also because I was studying what I was studying, but, you know, also, um.
0: But you weren't the only Asian studying Asian studies in Bonn, right? Or were No, you-
1: there were, there were many immigrant children and also many Germans who were interested in Asia, in Asian yeah. language. Yeah. So that was a little bubble mm. of people who were respecting and in, were interested yeah. in Asia. But like I said, it was yeah. just a bubble and it was getting tiring to mm-hmm. having the feeling that you go for something and you advocate, you stand for something that is so small and it's at the margins of a larger society. And I did not know what to do with it, mm-hmm. other than that I did not want to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what sort of accumulated is also daily... Um racism is a big strong word, but at the end of the day it is what it is. It's mm-hmm. the daily experiences that made me not feel home back then.
0: Yeah. So when you went to Korea did you feel more at home or did the Koreans were like, Oh, you're also still a foreigner?
1: I instantly felt home because they all look like me.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean that part, yeah, yeah.
1: So I did instantly feel home, but I eventually also learned that I'm not fully home there, but I had to go through that. And mm. I lived there for altogether three and a half years, almost four years. So I went to graduate school for two years, and then I thought I would return to Germany, but I got this incredibly dream job opportunity to work for a cultural organization, which In was then kind of my dream job. Mm. And I thought, oh my God, maybe... maybe I can do all this this cultural ambassador thing, you know (laughs) in a more serious setting.
0: Yeah, and and be and being paid for it too for your troubles. Yeah,
1: and be paid for it and be surrounded by all the other people who feel alike. Mm -hmm. That was the Goethe Institute based in Seoul. Oh, okay. And it was a nice and a terrible experience at the same time. Oh really?
0: What was what was what was the good and what was the bad?
1: I think what the two years working there really taught me is how well organized this organization is, uh-huh. and just in terms of um, how organizations can work. I mean, I mean the programs were fantastic too. Uh, it was a dream job because I was at the cultural department, being able to assist my boss to directly invite really interesting artists to come to Korea and to help them with producing and exhibiting or performing their work. So in that sense, you were in the center of where exchange through the arts was happening. Yeah. So it was incredibly enriching experience in that sense but because I was also involved in the organizational matters, I saw that there was so little culture exchange and mutual respect Mm. intercultural communication happening within the organization. Mm. There were Korean employees and then there were Germans. Mm -hmm. And me being very fluent and aware of the subtleties of of, of both languages Mm -hmm. and cultures, I, I saw that this there was a friction it was not yeah. that it was yeah. not happening that yeah. there was not a real meeting happening yeah, yeah. it made me sad and it made me angry sometimes and I realized okay this is not the place where I like to continue what I'm doing
0: and were, and did you also this whole time were you also investing more uh, studies in Korean dance during your Asian studies yeah
1: yeah, that was one of the main reasons um, also why I wanted to go to Korea to keep learning Korean dance.
0: So were you part of a community, a group? How did you go about doing that?
1: I went to school.
0: Oh, oh, oh! you went to school in addition to your Asian studies school? Because I thought you, yes, you, you went yes. to Korea specifically for Asian studies, but you also went to school for the Korean dance. Yes, oh. it was a
1: dance school. It was a dance school, not within a university setting, but it was oh. a dance company.
0: Oh, wow. I also
1: had a school. Yeah, there is still a good family to me, and it's, it, I think it was necessary that I kept doing that Yeah. until now. It's it's always like these both languages that I keep close to my heart. That is one is the studying and the writing, but I have to move.
0: Yeah, and then after Korea and after working as a cultural ambassador, uh, <laughs> that's a big word. What happened? That was not my
1: title, by the way. <laughs> oh, was it
0: wasn't. What was your title?
1: Oh no! I thought I was doing that, but, oh, but uh, no. no uh, yeah, I
0: yeah.
2: yeah,
1: I thought I was doing that. Yeah. I, I probably did contribute to some extent, but
0: hmm. yeah.
1: Cultural manager or project manager is
0: hmm. more
1: official title.
0: But don't don't sell yourself short.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you yeah. know, we're all about embellishing these days, right?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so so yeah. So then afterwards, you where'd you go?
1: I fell in love with somebody (laughs) and moved to the US (laughs) to make the strawberry store, which I did not expect at all. Because at that point, I I was looking for um, PhD programs in Australia. So I was all up for already moving to Australia. Oh, okay. To Sydney. Um, They had a great program. So I thought, okay why not try out for what a complete for for my phd programs that combined asian history with performing arts mm-hmm. but then things, yeah. things took a different direction and i found myself in los angeles
0: <laughs> what was your first impression of los angeles
1: i have to say first impression first impression of socal was not was not LA it was Irvine mm,
2: mm.
1: and then it was LA I mean I did my best to drive up to LA <laughs> almost every day because I hated Irvine so much <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and I brainwashed myself saying I-, I don't live in Irvine I don't live in Irvine I live in LA <laughs> well everyone says they're
0: from LA and like I don't know how many mile radius right <laughs>
1: yes i was also getting used to this complete new fabric of the city the, the widespreadness yeah this vastness the desert basically half desert everything was different yeah i don't know where to begin it's been i'm here now and it's been more than it's been 6 years that i lived lived here and only after six years, I started making friends. I felt warm. <laughs> took six years. <laughs> With <laughs> it took a long time.
0: Six years you feel the warmth of LA in the yeah. never-ending sun and fires. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it took a long time. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it, it is the people that mm-hmm. make me feel more and more home here. Yeah. It is it has become my second home. Yeah. Definitely. By now, I'm realizing that this time, too. I've been really, really enjoying catching up with the friends here. Yeah. That's why by now I can call this place my second home.
0: Yeah. And then eventually, I know you enrolled in a PhD program at, at um, Freie University. And yes. And well, what what spurred you to <clears throat> go back to Germany to get your PhD program? And were you, were you dancing the entire time while you were in L.A.?
1: Well, yeah, so after my Goethe Institute, I realized that, that I wanted to continue working as a freelance performer, freelance dancer and freelance performer, which I did right after I came to SoCal. So I did that and maybe because of that, adjusting to a new country and culture was difficult and it took a long time because it was also Changing jobs, yeah, and just really trying to find job opportunities in a country and a city where I did not go to school, where I did not have an, a network. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was driving so much to get to know people and to find jobs, yeah, it was a constant job searching,
0: yeah, I know that feeling and getting
1: gigs, and yeah performing for very little money, until I figured out how I wanted to balance it for myself and structure it for myself by making this this choice of, okay, I want to get a half time job that um, gives me some sort of stability. But I want to continue the freelance performing job. And one of my now mentors is um, the curator at the LACMA Museum. She back then just really welcomed me to her department. She was the first person who trusted me in mm-hmm. a way because I was a stranger from another country, from another place. And um, also somebody who did not was not able to prove any prior work experience in- that field so she really welcomed me as as the first person saying okay if you want to work here you can work here
0: like work where
1: like Um, as a i i started in i I started working as an intern at the chinese and korean art department because i was able to read and research the Mm. archival material Mm -hmm. and then i eventually became a research assistant For that department,
2: Mm.
1: for for ancient Korean art, I mean, which was my expertise, and it was, I mean, for me, it was a treasure place, that archive, Uh, that access, being able to access all the archives of culture and scripts. Mm. It was, um, it was also the time when I started taking archival material as my raw material to make new dances.
2: Oh, nice.
1: Yeah, access to that knowledge and history was so inspiring. And my boss at Lakma, she was one of the first people who encouraged me back then, you have to go back to school. Like, you have to study. You would, you know, benefit from an environment where you have more guidance mm. and mentorship. Mm. It's, you don't have that here. Yeah. That's what she said.
0: Mm. It's, so before what were your dances like? So you said around LA and as you were doing this research position, that's when you started using these archival materials. Were you not before? And what were what were the kind of dances you were doing?
1: I was very led by the former training mm. that I had in ballet, but also in traditional Korean dance. And later as an adult, I also learned Indonesian Dayak dance. Mm. And these folk dances were something that... Was leading my practice, and I was heavily borrowing the dance vocabulary, the movement vocabulary mm. from those dances that I was trained in. And all that access to this rich historical material that I was getting uh, working at the museum was really inspiring me to tell stories about that because it was so interesting yeah. to me, and I wanted more people to know about these stories. And I just transformed, I translated these stories that I would find in the archives into dances. And really working as a freelance performer was training me, opening my eyes to making collaborations with visual artists in LA, Mm -hmm. which was very, a transforming experience for me. So being trained as a dancer, you just are wired differently. You put so much emphasis on process and movement and interaction and mm-hmm. body encounter. And working with visual artists was so eye-opening because you know you you think very differently also in terms of how you're presented, it, how you, it's perceived visually by the audience, and just learning about how you can present things differently was mm. was so eye-opening. I loved. I mean, that has become a very crucial branch or tradition in my own practice that I'm continuing. That mm. I I always have an ongoing dialogue slash collaboration with
2: yeah. a
1: person who is not a dancer necessarily, yeah. or not you know coming from music or visual art, because when I was working here back then, I learned that this is how I grow. Yeah, this is the way how I. Develop my work best.
0: Yeah, could I ask what would be some what would be something that is different in the way that a visual artist might be interested in how something is presented versus a dancer? I, <laughs> I, I mean, I thought you, I th- you would
1: ask that because <laughs> well, well,
0: in my mind, I was like, dancers do care how they're perceived, right? And then you, if you're on the stage, you've got your lighting, um, and so perception is important. I thought so. I'm just, I'm just curious, what is what would be like a subtle thing that that a visual artist or maybe your an experience in your past where you're like oh like it's interesting that the visual artist thought about the visuals in this way
1: Mm -hmm. I think it depends on where you are and what role you take in the production of a dance or a theater Mm. Um, because when you are involved in the scenography or choreography, you definitely think of all this, the bigger picture and the perception and how it's visually presented by the audience. Mm. But if you are a dance company member or a performer who is dancing somebody else's choreography, it's more about the process. I mean, for me personally, it was more about the process and uh, the experience. I mean, of course, you are very aware of how you are being perceived, but you get a choreography, you get a story, and you have to, like an actor or actress, you have to perform it, you have to express Mm -hmm. that. Whereas when I came to LA and I was on my own and there was no company and I had the agency and the freedom and the mm, control if you want to yeah. say so to create the whole production in the form yeah, yeah. of a mini production yeah. and you are the artist of your own work yeah, yeah. you think of so many other things and i was overwhelmed i wanted to do that but i was overwhelmed with that task yeah. and i learned so much how in many creative ways visual artists work with that in yeah. their limited resources yeah Um, this was very eye-opening i would not consider myself as a choreographer per se i like the word and the meaning and the idea of being a dancer because at at the end of the day what i do Mm. because there are also choreographers who don't dance at all themselves and are invested in creating the choreography Mm. and the, the production but yeah, I was having very limited resources when yeah. I was in LA or still to now. I chose to continue my practice that way. And learning about all the creative ways how visual artists make little things to bigger things in their own studios. A lot of the times in their apartment and being able to just create a whole world around it was yeah. very,
0: yeah. was
1: very enriching.
0: Was yeah. Very fascinating. So then... What is, your, what is your PhD uh, thesis?
1: My PhD thesis is about um, choreography and ghosts. Uh, and that is the recent change in direction or interest that I have for me personally when it comes to creating a dance. So there was a long time, which was the six years of LA and the first one year in Berlin, when I made dances that were... Very interactive with the audience and mm. only half choreography led, but I improvised. Mm-hmm. Similar to like a field research, right? Where you interview people. Mm-hmm. So you do movements and you, you perform. And one of the aims why you, why you do that is because you want to get a reaction out of the audience. This is for me how I conduct my own research and getting to know like, where am I? How am I being perceived? That was incredibly important when i came to germany went back to germany after 10 years because that was the first time living in germany as an adult mm. and um, yeah i felt okay i need to get to know what audience i'm performing yeah like who are they
2: yeah. how
1: are they perceiving my body that is female that's asian and how am i perceived who, who am i to them it's always very important that I have this dialogue and I cannot have this dialogue not knowing where my counter like the other part is dialogue partner. So I was doing these uh, improvisational interactive dance performances. But I knew that more and more I wanted to create stories that are on their own. So going away from this, you know, there was a time when a dance was performed and up until this day where choreographers are very, you know, um, quiet about the interpretation of the work because it, the interpretation is in the eyes of the beholder. Mm -hmm. And I am really going away from, from that.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, You mean mean like pushing forth your interpretation as opposed
1: to? Yeah. Being mm -hmm. very, um, I say being very strong about uh, the story that I am telling Mm, versus the improvisational works and the dialogue works where I was intentionally being dependent on the dialogue partner because it was a conversation and it was about more about getting to know each other but I feel like I'm at a place where I have developed throughout the last years. Um, a few stories that I want to tell yeah and i want i don't want these stories to be understood in a different way it is about taking agency and, and being partisan and saying okay this is a very specific story that I want to tell yeah and if you see my body and if you see me moving then you might you know interpret it in, in the, this way but i you know at least for the time being when i'm performing i don't want you to do that i want i want you to listen to me. Mm. Yeah. Or the choreography, and that's the idea of choreography that connects to ideas of writing of my own history and mm. writing writing a story that connects to history in a certain culture. Right. That the choreography starts here, and then it ends here, and yeah, it, it, it's the whole narrative.
0: Right. I mean, I think that's important, right? The agency of the story. I think uh, usually, usually, it's the dominant culture that that allows itself to not have to explain itself, right? Whereas, whereas, when once you start talking about, you know, the agency of stories from cultures that are less well known, like there's also power in forcing that narrative um, as, right. as an anti-story or or as an alternative story that has to be explained.
1: Right. Yeah, that's definitely one of the concerns that I have, and which led me to also do research on choreography and contemporary transnational Asian performance context Yeah, is part of my PhD.
0: When did you start your PhD? When I met you in Berlin. Was that when you first started or you started before?
1: No, it's only been a year. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the subject and the, the things that I'm writing about probably have already been in my mind. Right. I've been dancing them and writing about them since I was working
0: here. Right.
1: And that's why I'm my former boss also said, okay, you, you, you want to do that in a different setting.
0: Cause you were doing like pieces, like the black Odonata piece, right? With the blackening of the teeth, yes, the studies and yes. squats. That is all connected
1: yeah. to, um, ideas of ghosts and spiritualism, shamanism. And also choreography, it's its all connected. It's just, for me, it was just finding a different language on how I can, I mean, there is a specific intention with me writing the book. Yeah. It is to communicate that book to a Western readership. Mm. I mean, otherwise I would not write this book. I, I Otherwise I would not want to write this book. Yeah. Maybe there will be a book in the future where I, I'm going to specifically talk to an Asian audience or a Korean readership, but the reason why I'm writing this in Germany and Europe and I'm writing it in, in the English language is because the majority of the people who I like to read it mm. will be uh, people who maybe are like me of Asian descent, but. Grow up transnationally, or grow up in a dias- diaspora community in yeah. Europe or a Western country, or they European or from America. Yeah, that that is that is the reason why I thought it is necessary for me to do it in Germany, and it's yeah. also necessary for me to write it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have that same thought when I, ideally, when I tell myself I'm why I do this podcast is so that I. For my for my younger self, for all the people who might be also be a version of my younger self.
1: Yeah, I I love that idea. I think it's important because you know it's it's really fun um, being part of these seminars and because in my thesis I don't write about my own practice in the PhD I write about other performers and artists who are all Asian performers but they are very aware of both audiences, Western audience and Asian audience, mm. and they create these dances and performances, very aware of the transnational context, mm. but specifically telling what I do in my own practice too, telling stories about Asian culture, history, or using ritualistic practices that kind of manifest themselves in different ways yeah. in a contemporary form. and. When I talk about these performers, some of them are already well known in Asia, but they're invisible, they're unknown in Germany. And Germany has such a long tradition of theater and dance that people who study it, especially people who are investing, yeah. <laughs> devote their lives in, and doing research and that, that they should know. <laughs> yeah. they, they should That's what know. That's Yes, and it's slowly happening. The awareness is a different one now compared to ten or twenty years ago when I grew up in Germany, and the immigration history is it's a different one too. So it is it, it's happening l- later than in America, but the second generation now of of um, immigration children are now in the position of applying their each of their own languages to really enrich the culture and make it more multicultural in a in a real way, not just how it's taught to you in books. Because this is how I was taught when I was growing up in Germany. I always had a positive idea on multiculturalism. I was just never experiencing it. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) That's like
0: that's like everywhere.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So even if it's just a small contribution, I think it's important that I find it I find it important to speak about it and to become innovative and you know become creative in finding ways how to become visible yeah how to become more known
0: i was curious if there are any what are some of the um dancers that that you are really invested in talking to or studying that are in asia that you feel should be more well known in germany and or the western culture
1: um yeah it's So one person, she is already a big name in Korea. Her name is Mm -hmm. An-unmi. She's a trained shaman dancer who later studied in New York contemporary dance. And she has this incredible dance company and her own artistic practice where she infuses shaman dance and rituals and traditions with and mixes them with contemporary dance and music. One of the reasons why I was falling in love with her practice is she did a field research in the whole country of um, Korea. So she traveled the the peninsula of Korea and went to rural areas to videotape and interview elderly women. Mm -hmm. And the piece that she eventually made um, is called Grandmothers, so the dance of the grandmothers. And what she did is she put a video camera up and um, you know engaged in a conversation and told them, "Hey, do you want to dance with me?" And the grandmothers they would dance and they. It's it's so fascinating to see that the hand movements, especially they do this.
0: That reminds the me hand of movements. the movie Mother, the Korean movie Mother, in the very beginning.
1: Oh, I didn't see that movie, uh, but it begins. Um, it
0: begins with the mom. Doing, doing that. Doing
1: this dance, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's, it's, um, it is very similar to, um, so Korea has a very strong and long ancient tradition of female shamans who were very connected uh, and practicing dance.
2: Mm.
1: And the, this, this hand movement is very characteristic of the shaman dance mm. and this this knowledge this tradition which is very specific for many indigenous countries but asian countries that it passes down through bodies intergenerationally Mm. music and poetry and dance was always passed down through bodies Mm. and the body itself becomes the book there was not a lot of writing it was it was not the it was not text that was that was um, being respected, but it was the body that was respected, and it was the living body that was respected and acting as the book of poetry, dance, and music. And it was just so powerful to see mm. these uh, grandmothers, these random grandmothers in these rural areas who were working in the rice fields, and then you know they were captured by the video yeah. camera and they started dancing and. Yeah, she's, she's one person I'm writing about and Sodun Ok is another artist and teacher and performance artist and dancer I'm looking at. They actually grew up here in Long Beach um, in the biggest Cambodian diaspora outside of Cambodia and later they decided to move to Phnom Penh where they are right now and they opened the first queer dance company in Phnom Penh. And what this dance company does is they teach and perform the classical Khmer dance, which is regarded in this country as one of the highest cultural assets. And it's, it's, it's a spiritual and divine culture that is holy. And it was facing a lot of Discrimination and hardships in the beginning because it was danced by queer bodies and gay bodies, which was not accepted by the society. And it's just incredible to see the the journey and the history of this dance company. Not having internationally big productions, yeah. but very being very specific in saying, okay, this dance company wants to serve and dance for the people in Phnom Pen yeah. and the people here because it's. it's this is It's more needed than having international productions in other countries where Korean is or these subjects have a very different context. And it's also to some extent, you know, politically it's, it's, it's institutionalized and it's, it's understood differently and used differently. I admired that a lot, that decision of a Cambodian-American young artist who has studied here in the U.S., who studied arts in the U.S. to move to Phnom Penh and to do it there in the smaller community of
2: yeah. of,
1: of yeah. the city where it is. and later they got more known through a TED talk that was yeah, happening, and I then saw that, you know I saw that invitations for oh you had, so you know from Sudnok. Yes, and later invitations that, that made the dance company and their efforts more internationally known. But it really started mm. uh, there, and yeah, those those are the people I'm I'm uh, writing about and incredibly inspiring. Yeah, so much. Yes, yeah. um,
0: I mean, the, I think the first piece I saw was you you performing the the Black ordonata piece. Was, yeah, I think it was part of like a, a bunch of performance festivals happening around Kreuzberg. And then and then I saw your studies on squats.
1: Mm.
0: Which <laughs> wow, I love. You, you
1: saw what? two things. You saw two performances.
0: It's yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed the history you talked about in terms of the squatting, but I was curious if you wanted to talk about those pieces because I, I found I found the stories and the the ways that you incorporate it into a dance very uh, fascinating, and also what these histories talk about in terms of, you know, this sort of transnational historical slash colonizing of different cultures.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk about these pieces because these are ongoing ones. The Black Odonata is is basically, I later realize is basically an um, alter ego <laughs> that I developed.
0: Oh, of you? Like you call yourself yeah. the Black Odonata?
1: Yes, uh, yes, I am Black Odonata um and in some of the performances that i do i become black odonata because i realized that i cannot dance the dances that i am dancing um as young Natali. Hmm. it was impossible so i created this this alter ego named black odonata and she is a dragonfly with black teeth and the beginnings of this was that I met with stories of women who, and men, but um, mainly women who blackened their teeth uh, back in the days in in a lot of countries in Asia, but um, also in, like it was, it was a pretty widespread ancient practice of teeth lacquering or teeth blackening. Mm And it was happening in Japan, known as Ohaguru practice. It was happening in the northern part of Vietnam, in Southeast Asia, in the Oceanic cultures, in India, and one—I mean, there are so many stories around this this ritual. But one story that I was kind of could connect with was uh, how, in Japan, the Ohaguru practice was by the government forbidden after the Meiji period.
0: Mm. After World War Two, um, right? Yes,
1: yeah. I mean the major period was was a long, long era, but it also was the time when the country was struggling through building diplomatic relationships with Europe, but at the same time also becoming independent from the colonial rule, and when the Queen of uh, Japan, it was the tradition was slowly disappearing. And by the time when the Queen came to, you know, showed herself in the public for the first time with, with white teeth, it was um, a shocking moment for especially the women who all wanted to be like her. Mm. And this very graceful, beautiful ritual that was celebrated in so many countries is now either it's it's vanished. Or it's been shown in some touristy areas of Japan. It's it was it was so sad to see that that a whole tradition can just disappear like that, as so many other languages and cultures disappear. It was just one example. It is just one example. And I was keep having you know dreams about a dragonfly who was having black teeth,
2: hmm.
1: and I cannot. I, I cannot I don't really know why Dragonfly, but at that time when I was developing this piece and developing this character, this nature of the black Odonata, there were a lot of dragonflies also visiting me, not just in dreams, but in real life. Where were they you? They were just I <laughs> it's <laughs> really mostly I was in here in LA, okay. but I was also in Germany. And then I was also once visiting Chicago for the first time. I remember I was sitting by the river and uh, a dragonfly would sit on my toe, just like look at me for a long time. Okay. <laughs> I took a picture and I just thought, okay, this is this is keep happening. Hmm. And yeah, so a lot of incidents that people telling me they saw a dragonfly and they would call me and I would text me. Yeah, let me know. yeah so... The story was the more I did research on this tradition and the more I did research on these some of the women in North Vietnam who also fear that their tradition is, you know, getting no respect from their younger generation and their children was so sad that I had to find a a way of of telling the story. Mm. I just did not want to make a story that is just sad, but I wanted to make a Make a story that kind of borrows like strategies from from fiction mm. to make it hopeful. At the end of the day, to make it transformative, to like take take something that is a sad story, but where I feel like okay, by adding fiction, it, I can transform it, and I can transform myself. I mean that, that that is common with all the other dances that I make. So this dragonfly is a lava in the beginning and it seeks to transform, and it it is underwater and um, looks up. That's the performance that you saw that was part of the Performing Arts Festival. It has many chapters, and the chapter that you saw in Kreuzberg was the moment when the lava becomes the dragonfly mm. <laughs> the very first moment so that's why i was laying on yeah. the floor yeah. and looking up because i was still not a dragonfly and i was seeing all the creatures flying around in the sky and i wanted to become like them
2: mm.
1: and all the birds and the insects are flying around and looking at me and yeah. just thinking who is this weird person uh, weird dragonfly insect with black teeth and i'm just like slowly realizing that i'm different but I'm not giving up hope and just really struggling to break out of my cocoon. And it did have an open ending because back then I did not know how to finish that chapter. So when I break out of the cocoon and become a dragonfly and starting to make my first movements, it's a mixed realization of sadness, horror,
2: (laughs) Horror?
1: horror, and sadness, horror, and hope. So remember that, that back then the, the performances were more interactive and conversational. One of the ideas was, was also to make the audience members, all the other insects and birds. So when they look at me, I was incredibly curious of how they would react to me mm. when I dance and the way how I dance and when they see me, how I look and when they see me with my teeth, just smiling at them
0: <laughs> you're, you're all, all black which is i mean but I'll, i remember you you hit that part right i think you were lying down for a while before you showed your teeth
1: um yeah
0: so there's yeah. Like, definitely like a, a surprise
1: yeah it's a mixed reaction that i'm also getting from the audience remember this there was a one person who was laughing or mm-hmm. yeah, saying yeah, I remember. something yeah
2: mm-hmm.
1: and i was so grateful that this all was happening like i love throwing myself into an audience where i cannot expect anything i have -hmm. to let control of and i need to just react to what's going on Mm -hmm. but it is what i believe also what happened back then when these women were walking around proudly with black teeth and there are documents that um from both sides the European diplomatic documents, and also from the side of uh, Japan or other countries that were able to write down a few things about the experiences that they went through. One of the reasons why I take the Ohaguro is a starting point is because the government was just... Uh, it was a case in a country where even the government intervened to abolish a whole tradition hmm. that was a big part of the country and that's why there is more documents that you can go back to and refer to
0: do you know why they were so intent on
1: wiping it out oh yeah well yeah of course it's it's to improve the diplomatic relationships okay. with uh, okay. the european countries okay. there are many there are many scripts documents that um, evidence to observations of how western people yeah. came to the countries and were horrified yeah. by these people who were walking around with black tea. i mean it's nobody's fault but it, because it was so different yeah. it was met with horror and it was met with um laughter and it just looked on there from yeah. their perspective it just looked ridiculous yeah like why would you want to have black tea that looked dirty it looked weird. It looked strange." And those are the actual words that, that have been used to like describe the, the reactions from the diplomats. And it was not doing good for the country that wanted to build relationships yeah. with European get, countries. Yeah. Get
0: trade and all that stuff.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, all, it's, it's, a, it's an example or an outcome of when two cultures meet. Mm-hmm. and what can happen when, when two cultures meet that are very different. All right. So I really enjoyed that performance.
0: And what was what, what do people normally blacken their teeth with?
1: I, I used charcoal, but it, it was very different from country to country. Some used um, melt iron. Hmm. Some countries, they used uh, fruits, berry fruits that had a dying effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was. Um, yeah, charcoal was used too. So everything that you could find in nature was used to liken their teeth, and to also some cultures also modified their teeth, so that they be body modification that the teeth would look different. Yeah,
0: and then that also this uh, statement you just said about how what a common natural result when two cultures meet uh, in relationship. I thought to the uh, your studies on squats which I personally was really inspired by and I still would like to do a video piece on. I haven't, haven't gone around yeah, to it, but uh, yeah, too. I don't know if you want to talk about the, the <coughs> brief history on squatting, which I never, I had no idea, but I think it's a really strange, fascinating sort of history and mm-hmm. how that became a piece as well.
1: Yeah. I remember the conversation that I had with you when I was just starting the studies on squats and that was inspired by the stories. Did I ever forward you that article about uh, the technological invention of the chair and how
0: that changed? you t- you told me about it? But I never, I never got the article.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> I, I'll I'll forward it to you. So that was uh, one of the papers um, that inspired me to start this.
2: Yeah.
1: How the invention of the chair, which was a product of um, industrial revolution and a technological um, invention. How much that changed our surroundings and all of the furniture, and how we spend I mean, probably you too, and I we spend so much time on chairs.
0: <laughs> Got that problem. Um, <laughs> so, yeah.
1: yeah. And then. You know, after inventing these chairs and uh, making our body stiff and not healthy anymore, we invent ergonomic chairs to <laughs> uh-huh, go back yeah, to yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: somehow more a stand st- standing
0: desks or, you know, desks that go up and down.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. It's, it's, um, it's a funny story, but, um, I was, I was interested in that. But when it really started this curiosity about the squatting position is uh, was when i was looking at my own videos and seeing that i was squatting a lot in my uh, dance performances mm. and i realized i'm doing that in my improvisational dances unconsciously because in that position i was finding a moment of power when i squat like of, of um, a moment of empoweredness if you want to say so that i i felt empowered and I felt very strong. It's it's the energy and the confidence that this squatting position gives to me when I dance. And I think that's why I kept incorporating the squatting position more and more without becoming very aware of it when yeah. I was doing my dances in front of live audiences. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful position to begin with, but it's also so many associations and names that i found very interesting that i googled and i met with the term asian squad
2: mm-hmm. and
1: memes in a popular language it's also called the jail pose or the slap squad
2: mm-hmm.
1: so all of these different um, languages names for these squatting positions they come with certain associations it has a position when the woman is urinating it's also a sexual position
2: mm-hmm. So it
1: has a lot of different it's so complex it has a lot of different connotations and I thought okay this is like enough raw material that I can use to develop this speed and right now I'm really going back to the roots of how this started is when I think of the squatting position I think of elderly women in Korea, but also here in Los Angeles when you, especially when you go to neighborhoods where they sell uh, vegetables and different kinds mm. of produce on the streets, yeah. women or the men squat because mm. they don't have chairs, they, they squat very comfortably. And the apartment that I live in in Berlin, because I'm in a courtyard, there is a Vietnamese restaurant in that courtyard and when i look out of the window there are always one or two chefs <laughs> <laughs> working in the kitchen to yeah. take a cigarette break in the courtyard yeah and i mean i understand because i live in that house too but there there are always always um, a lot of complaints about noise in the courtyard
0: uh, yeah Germans love their <laughs> quiet courtyards <laughs>
1: <laughs> and um these poor people who work in the kitchen, um, they they used to have more stuff out there because the kitchen, I know, I mean, I've seen the kitchen is incredibly small and they they need to come out and have their breaks in the courtyard and then they would talk to each other and stuff. But because they were getting complaints, they have these now short of cigarette breaks mm. and <laughs> they don't have any chairs. They have nothing. They just have themselves and the cigarettes and they squat.
2: yeah
1: it's like this this like when i look down i always see them squatting and chatting yeah and yeah i like i said this project is going on it's inspired by these stories and observations that i make in my close environment of how people move and how people rest and how people behave and i would so this this particular project studies with uh, studies on squads is growing into a performance lecture because oh, i find really? like okay i want to make a series of because it's so much um it's difficult to, to summarize yeah um,
0: yeah the information it started is so vast.
1: right uh, the variations that we can make with the squatting position starting from its relationship to the chair to how uh, until up to this day and diaspora communities in germany people squatted the courtyards and then also what it means as a woman to squat. all of these i like to make into a series of performance lectures and i'm yeah i'm already almost finished with the script but it's going to be this multiple series of performance lectures Mm. uh, that i will give from start to end in a squatting position (laughs) yeah yeah so that's that and with Black Oranata. She is also my other persona, so that's that's an ongoing thing. And I see that someday in the future, once I have gone through multiple chapters that I want to perform live, I see that as a book. Like I would, I would love to make a book hmm. about Black Oranata. So it's all continuing, yeah, growing, yeah,
0: forever going, yeah. All right. And how long how, how many more years till your um, your PhD is done?
1: They're giving me 3 years altogether. Oh nice. <laughs> so I think it's doable. 2020 has been a year where I was able to write a lot because I'm sure. I could perform at all.
2: Yeah.
1: So I see that as a positive thing that yeah. this year is, is has brought to me. I'm sad that I wasn't able to perform live but I wasn't in any way proactively pursuing, trying to make happen a video performance. Yeah. Because for me personally, I don't, I don't see anything that is working. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll change my mind. I don't know. But for, <laughs> for now, I took it as a chance to really write, to take the time and write my thesis. Yeah. Yeah. It gives me a lot of joy. Really? Yes.
0: It's, I mean, it's funny because it's like the opposite of what you started out with, right? Which is you dance so you didn't have to use words. And now you're using <laughs> words to specifically for the thing that doesn't have words, right?
1: That's a good point. It's because I have this very love-hate contentious relationship with text
2: <laughs> Yeah, and language
1: <laughs> and language. Wow. Like when I look back, I like as as a dancer or as an artist, it's, it's been this continuous search of finding the right language for me to do the things that I want to do or tell the stories that I want to do. That n- it never changed, but yeah. until I found the language for myself to do it, that took a lot of time. But I always loved reading books and I admire people who have a poetic, beautiful command of their language. And it, I have this fascination of language and text because it's so different from the dancing body it's in in my mind it is the opposite and that's why i probably am so drawn to it and it's so fascinating when i have a text and i read a good book it has this magic this this potential to like be not attached to any place and time
2: Hmm.
1: which is so freeing and dance is for me, the dancing body is exactly the opposite. It's mm. so aware of where I am and the time with every movement. Time and rhythm is so important and text just is not attached to that. Mm. So yeah, as much as writing for myself is very painful and I don't like I don't know if I'm talented.
0: <laughs> uh, I don't I think writing is painful for most people
1: yes i think so too Uh, i love doing it just to be on the other side yeah
0: yeah yeah we we went over a lot of things thanks for talking with me
1: oh my god i feel like i talked so much (laughs) no no
0: it was good I, i i i really enjoyed it um i'm excited to see see your uh updates on the studies for squats and the black odonata piece
1: yeah
0: i would really love to see that lecture on the squats um and yeah you'll have to send me that that article on the chairs
1: yes yes i will do that right after the podcast no, um, to no, view.
0: no rush well hopefully i can you know we'll be able to meet up in person in some distant future we will
1: The there will be a post-corona time
0: (laughs) yeah all right well all right how's a good talk thank you natalie again
1: i had so much fun talking to you
0: did you i'm glad yeah take care natalie you too Bye. bye seeing color is recorded edited and produced by myself Z1 Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.